Hi there, and welcome to the podcast episode of the television show Stargate SG-1. For the channel, let's review with Layla and you. For additional content on the other review episodes published by this account on a variety of subjects, come visit us in the RSS community where you can find us under the name Let's Review with Layla and You. You can also find us on Instagram under the same name. Here you can find more additional in-depth content, including with every episode and upload of promotional posts accompanying every podcast episode, as well as provide us a place vacation and where we can share and exchange ideas, thoughts, and whatever else you like to share concerning this whole adventure that we're setting out on together. So come meet up with me, myself, and I, and I would love to hear what y'all think. Hope to see you there. Welcome to the review of Stargate SG-1 Season 1 Episode 4, Emancipation. Original air date was August 8th, 1997. It was written by Catherine Powers and directed by Jeff Woolmer. As for always, the episode starts off with an MGM line roaring. Quite possible not a lot of people know this episode. Apparently it has been honored to be named the worst, if not one of the worst episodes of the entire Stargate franchise. To such an extent, when they air reruns of the television series, they tend to skip this one. So I'm currently watching this on DVD and not a streaming service. I'm not aware how the streaming services chose to air this and if they left it in or if they took this episode out. Out. To those people who aren't able to see it, I really wonder, after listening to this, were they right to nix this episode and pretend like it never happened? Or do you say, well, now looking back, it was still the beginning of a new television series, we were still getting to know everyone and testing the waters of what we could and couldn't do, or believe that this isn't a Stargate SG-1 episode at all, that they are absolutely right to pretend that this never happened. Which, for the record, I didn't even know they could. That you could just delete, deny the existence of an episode. Or maybe even think this was a very important theme to tackle. Maybe they tried it a little too early in the show to be appreciated as it should be. I really wonder what y'all think. Before we get into the thick of it, I will concede it was the worst episode of the season. The fact that it was such a standalone episode could have something to do with that as well. Thus inadvertently actually making it more easy to deny its very existence and to pretend it never happened. Maybe I'm more, a little more mild because it was still first season in the beginning of the season. Everyone was still getting to know these characters, getting to know the Stargate universe, the different possibilities that the Stargate program offers. The most distinguishing part of this Stargate episode to me is that it seems to be completely standalone. There is no referencing or contact with General Hammond. It really feels like it's very isolated and thus quite easily could have just been a completely different show. Thus maybe, especially seeing that it's so early in the series, an odd choice because you're still trying to establish your fan base and then to, in episode 4 of the first season, seemingly abandon the entire Stargate premise. Odd choice. In fact, the episode starts with them arriving on this planet and ends with them leaving this planet. There's no communication with Stargate Command, which at some point is kind of odd that with all the happenings that nowhere they decided maybe we should call back home for a check-in, a sit-rep, an update, whatever you want to call it, and later for possible reinforcements or advice, something. As I said in my previous episodes, yes, it's clearly bonkers that they come across a planet and they speak perfect English. That for me wasn't a big leap. I'd already accepted the fact that this television series work, they were gonna have to talk English. Or at least a language that Daniel could recognize in the first five minutes of the episode. That's the fun of a sci-fi show though, we can bend some rules and be very creative while we're doing it. 
I can only imagine how language experts are frustrated by this television series. On the other hand, they do try. I mean, they introduce words specific to this franchise. I mean, it can't all be Tolkien pulling on level, right? My eyes, great effort, and they are distinctive to this television series and franchise, so I respect that. However, as I previously mentioned, you got to come to grips with that and just let that go. Otherwise, it's going to annoy you for the entire television series, and there are so many other things to enjoy and get annoyed about. And that's why we are reviewing this, to share all of our shared annoyances and our shared delights, preferably many of those as well. Just overall rejoicing in the beauty and the gift that is Stargate. Another one that I came across in my research that I didn't even clock as being a thing, according to someone, is the fact that they have dogs. Yeah. They've got humans, dogs, horses swords, arrows. All in all, after watching this episode, what most stuck with me concerning the franchise was that Daniel identifies the people on this planet to seemingly be descendants from Genghis Khan-style-esque society that apparently became extinct 900 years ago. While 4,000 years ago they buried the gate, so then who came to our planet and took these people and transplanted them on this planet? Should we be worried that there are other aliens that are coming to Earth and abducting us? That was more my concern after hearing that part, but okay. We're getting way, way ahead of ourselves. Let's start with reviewing the actual episode. We start the episode with Carter arriving last, after which the gate disconnects. The gate seems to be at the center of a destroyed temple. Though the immediate surroundings seem to be deserted, Carter suddenly hears dogs. Shortly thereafter, they see a boy being chased by dogs, and O'Neill eventually fires his gun in the air to chase them away. As I'm watching this scene now, it seems oddly familiar, and it reminds me of that scene in The Prince of Thieves with Kevin Costner as Robin Hood, where he saves the boy wolf from dogs. Though I got to say, they did it better. Oh, that was such a good movie. Ooh, maybe I'll review that one too. But, oh, now, wait, Stargate first. Focus. As they approach the boy, O'Neill tries to inquire if he's okay. And this is where the, alright, let's roll with it moment comes in. The boy who introduces himself as Abu says, yes, thanks be to you, I'm okay. Pretty much verbatim as I just said it. He introduces himself as uh, being a member of the Shavadai tribe and inquires if they are people of the river, which first made me think, like, does he mean the gate, seeing that it looks like a pool of water? They seem to hold off to answer that directly. And then he says, are you from the Sea of Bogada? And then they go, sure. Now here, I always assumed that they assumed that he meant the gate. Now I'm not so sure, because this could very well just be a place on the planet that he knows of but's never been. So that kind of struck me as odd this time around. Why so hesitant to tell him that you came through the Stargate? It doesn't appear to hold any meaning in their society because the temple was deserted and clearly not their architectural style. But still, why so hesitant to divulge that you came through the gate? After this, the gate is never mentioned. You don't see if the temple is in any way part of their cultural society, even if they perhaps were not the ones to build it in the first place. So that was interesting that they introduced the gate being in the midst of a deserted temple area, thus signifying apparently that the gate holds no importance to the people on this planet, and they never tell them about the gate. So that only now I clocked as being, oh, interesting. But then again, this episode really is a very, very standalone episode. 
You could even say the Stargate holds no significance to this episode at all. Which almost makes you wonder, was this episode ever even intended to be a Stargate episode? Or was it written for another show and just recycled? Still can Carter come back to notify them that they chased away the dogs. The moment Carter speaks, Abu the boy becomes incredibly uncomfortable without any reservations, just walks right up to O'Neill. Not a choice to make him walk up to someone he just met and okay, yes, they saved his life, but they are strangers, they look completely different, they apparently seemingly have a type of weaponry that you have no idea what it is, what it's capable of, but the trust level is apparently way up there. Okay. Scandalized, he says to O'Neill, she's a woman. O'Neill's like, oh yeah. A Carter notes that something is up, so she walks up to him, trying to see what she possibly could have done that offended him. He immediately looks away, puts his hand in her face and says, I can't look at you. And then Carter responds with, okay, now I'm hurt. It would have made more sense to me if she'd said, okay, now I'm just confused. What did I do? But then again, the whole deal, the whole shtick of this episode is you're female. It's not what you did, it's what you are. That's the whole offense. Next, men on horseback come up, and again, as soon as they clock her as female, they get all in a tizzy, tizzy here meaning murderous, and Carter's, okay, tell me what I did wrong so I can fix it. On the one hand, I can kinda sorta appreciate that they didn't immediately go there and try to make it seem like it possibly could have been a person being judged on their behavior and not their gender. However, dude, that's what this whole episode is about. Judging her purely based on the fact that she has lady parts. So in my opinion, they dragged this on a little too long to make her seemingly assume that it's something that she did and not that men are freaking out because she has lady parts. And as we ladies all know, some men tend to freak out because of that. And a lady in the 90s in the Air Force, you can't tell me that she has learned to spot misogyny a mile away. This almost makes me start to think that in the 90s, men need multiple episodes of a television series to first come to grips with a female character being more than just eye candy and is actually, I don't know, a person. Because this is the fourth episode of this franchise and we've already had two, and if we're completely honest and counting Children of the Gods as two separate episodes, three episodes on the fact that she has lady parts. A bit odd, but seemingly only now does the leader of the group arrive on horseback, and he appears to be Abu's daddy. Here we are left to assume that the dogs were not sent by them because they seem concerned for Abu's welfare, but we don't really learn who owned the dogs, who sent the dogs after the boy, so it was clearly just a introductory scene to create this meet cute. For me, it kind of feels like lazy writing or directing or I don't know, you know, what the whole basis of the story was. And if they just cut out a lot of it, that now, therefore, it doesn't make any sense. But yeah, strikes me as odd. Clearly, Carter still has not caught a clue because she talks and again, the men freak out. The chief daddy person in charge now says, law is law, she speaks, she died. Considering what happens later on, it's weirdly a boo that sticks up for her. It says she saved his life. Then his father goes, well, if a woman saves a life, hers cannot be taken. Which, okay, so a woman that saves a life can be excused for a faux pas. But apparently the fact that women give life to your fucking progeny doesn't innately qualify them or that only lasts for like two minutes. Okay. We're learning so much about this society that I'm already having so many opinions on. At this point in time, Carter raises the very valid point of maybe we should go back while we're ahead. Considering what just happened, she as a woman is clearly in a ginormous amount of danger. 
In just a few minutes, multiple times the men have tried to kill her for just opening her mouth. Not to mention any other possible offense that they can take from the fact that she has lady parts. Clearly not a safe place for her to be at. <clears throat> However, Daniel just seemingly weighs her concern away by saying, if we learn their customs, we'll be okay. It's an incredible opportunity to study an ancient culture of clothes. Because yeah, that is what's important right now. And can be done with anyone and by anyone else but you right here, right now. Did you miss the part that they just tried to kill her purely based on the fact that they recognized her as being a woman and the fact that she spoke? How much estimation can she do? Mm. When I first saw this, and I think that was early 2000s, it didn't really register to me as anything of significance. Now watching this, response pissed me off to such an extent where I, for the first time ever, <laughs> got mad at Daniel for being so goddamn naive. Women are in terrible, immense danger when men are so volatile that just by being a woman or opening your mouth, their instant response is off with her head, allowing no room for reassessment, a change of heart, mind, anything. So clearly a woman's life holds very little to zero meaning to men in this society. This doesn't even take into account what they can do to her before we get to the actual killing part. In societies such as these, women on a daily basis get abused, raped, tortured, you're introducing this kind of a society with these kinds of morals and laws here, they clearly, immensely, infuriatingly dismissed the danger that she was in. Now watching this, I'm disappointed. I will say, I do commend the writers and directors, the cast, the crew, for addressing this topic, especially in that day and age. I just think that they try to tackle a multifaceted, deeply layered topic in a 42-minute episode. I think they bit off more than they could chew at that point in time. But I do commend them for their efforts, because it's a very important topic that seriously needs to be talked about at length. So, therefore, I don't hate this episode because it creates such a cultivating ground to discuss these kinds of topics. That's why I did not want to skip this episode. The fact that they wrote it, made it, and that then, for whatever reason, people later decided to pretend it never happened and deleted it, I mean, that only highlights to me more reason to talk about it. Plus, people feeling very strongly about particular episodes is all the more reason to talk about it at length. That's me, you know, talking about the things other people don't want to talk about. This all actually makes me think about another TV show that kind of sort of did something similar, although the reason why I don't like the episode, I hope, is the reason that we all don't like the episode because it's pretty much unanimous. But there is this small fear that it may have something to do with them also addressing a topic that tends to give people a lot of feels. In Supernatural Early Years, there is an episode called Bugs that we all unanimously agree was just a bad, 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 bad episode. And that apparently the writer tries to pretend it never happened. And I mean, overall, the episode was good. There were funny bits with always the Dean and Sam getting mistaken for a gay couple instead of brothers. That's always a fun one. But it also tackled the Native American history and not shying away from the torturous, murderous, rapist, white supremacy of it all, which I can appreciate because, again, back then, this was early 2000s, 2000 that wasn't really talked about on mainstream television. So therefore, yes, I still honor this Supernatural episode. Though I do find it interesting that the entire Supernatural show, supposedly apart from a short trip across the pond to Scotland and, well, we're ignoring the UK at all, this took place in the United States of America, with a little wink to Canada, seeing that the show was actually recorded in Canada. But other than that, they never ever again, unfortunately, incorporated anything Native American in their storylines. So I do hope that that wasn't the reason 
reason that people are hating on the bugs episode. I myself personally hate the bugs episode because of the bad CGI. Because yes, the special effects sucked ass. So therefore, yes, I also agree, bad episode. But the bones were good, no pun intended. If you've seen the episode, you understand why. But also it gave us beautiful, hilarious anecdotes that we can cherish forever. The whole bee scene where Jensen got stung and Jared got stung in the butt and laughs all around. That is a lovely anecdote that I'm very glad exists. Now those boys suffer for their art. And do not even get me started on that season 15 rigging job because wow. Now that one was by it. It was basically a scene destined to be beyond epic and I just got completely taken out of the moment. Could not get past how awful it looked. And that has never happened to me in that show. Not even in bugs. So Eric Kripke for that one. You are forgiven, truly. Again, this Stargate episode, therefore, wasn't that bad, truly. Not even a little. So, like I said, I've seen a lot worse, and maybe I give this episode, therefore, a lot more of a forgiving review than others, but yeah, it had to be said, people. There are worse things you could do. Come on, now the Grease song is stuck in my head. Uh oh. Besides, isn't the whole point of art to inspire? Be it a thought or a feeling, people to talk, to maybe create themselves, and that's what we're doing here, right? Creating. All in all, I am thankful that they left the remark by Carter, maybe we should go back in. I am also, though, equally disappointed that they dismissed her very real and soon-to-be substantiated concern. Not even taking into account that she's a member of the Air Force, so she is obligated to follow O'Neill's lead. If O'Neill was a more knowledgeable, well-informed commanding officer, I think he would have considered her position, her predicament, differently. Okay, I'm trying to avoid using the word woke because it's got such a aura of very strong feelings attached to it lately. But that is the word I mean. People are awakening and viewing it from a different perspective. A perspective that they previously weren't aware of or just try to not be all that aware of because it was uncomfortable or for whatever reason. And hey, let me be the first to say I am not exempt in that. Though I think by pretty much all definitions of wokeness, you could consider me already quite woke. And I still have moments, quite often actually, where I'm like, huh, always just accepted that as that is just the way things are. And the things I've learned these past few years are still awakening me to a new perspective that for decades I didn't clock as being an example of male privilege, white privilege, monetary privilege, nepotism, and how normalized we view that and thus i still get awakened to certain things i would never have even considered to be a sign of very prevalent societal dysfunctional pattern that is beneficial to some but overall quite harmful to a majority of society Sometimes rewatching beloved movies or television series with characters that are obviously the hero of the story. Sometimes watching these scenes now, I'm like, huh. For instance, I had that with a Law and Order Special Victims Unit episode the other day, where we have seemingly as a society just accepted that people in power and or with a shit ton of money are treated differently. And that even our heroes lean into it. For instance, in this episode, Lieutenant Benson got pulled over. And one of the first things that she does is say, I'm a cop too. I'm a lieutenant. I'm a police officer. Same as you. For the first time ever, I recognized that she was calling upon a certain privilege and thus instructing him 
him, if not telling him, to treat her differently because of that privilege. Why would that in this situation matter? You're being pulled over. This is not job related. You're in the car with your kid. So that for the first time ever now struck me as interesting. She is signaling to him, I'm holding a certain position. Thus, you should treat me different as you are doing now. Or seemingly anyone that you pull over with that attitude. This was incidentally a not so innocuous moment. She was actually being pulled over as a scare tactic used by someone in power to show her how far his power reached, which incidentally adds another layer to this whole privilege party. The complicitness of this particular officer to allow himself to be used for such a tactic by someone in power to abuse his position as a police officer to pull her over and scare the crap out of her while she is with her child makes you think, why would he do that? Probably because that person in power also protects him when he is most likely being a misogynistic racist asshole. I'm just guessing. Thus he elects to abuse his power as a police officer to be used by another person in power trying to find out who assaulted someone. Spoiler, it was the person in power. That awakened me to the fact that we all call upon our privileges when we have them. In this case, it was societal hierarchy privilege, being part of the in crowd. I'm a police officer, so you should treat me differently. Well, basically, all boils down to where is your humanity? When you pull someone over, it has to be because of a certain safety issue. Not as a scare tactic, not as a manipulation tactic, not as tiny dick energy tactic. I refuse to call that a big energy tactic. A performance such as that only highlights the teeny tininess of your dicky. Previously innocuous scenes now can suddenly highlight to me a certain behavior or behavioral pattern that we all use, some abuse, and is thus awakening me to reflect, possibly reassess what that behavior means, entails, and if it's a desirable effect or something that we maybe should possibly, you know, change. For instance, that the norm seems to be that if you have money, you can buy your creature comforts. And the rest is basically just left to fend for themselves. I mean, if the monetary system in any way, shape, or form was fair, I guess maybe okay. But we all know it isn't. People in power abuse their position. Not for themselves, not for the people closest to them, who are often also people with, with either money, influence, or power. Not that whole, if you scratch my back, I scratch yours thing going. Or using the phrase that we've all unfortunately become very well acquainted with, quid pro quo. And also, let's not forget, rich people hoard wealth. I mean, when we've reached the point where a rapper can implant a 27 million dollar pink diamond on his forehead, while there are still people on this planet that are homeless, that are starving, that do not have access to proper healthcare, dying or going bankrupt because of it, we have lost touch with our humanity, people. And trickle-down economics is a fucking con that we also, again, is a very toxic pattern that we just perpetuate while we all are very well aware that, that benefits a certain type of people and, more importantly, harms a shit ton of other people. But we were raised that that was just the way it is. Oh, now I'm thinking of the Tupac song. I love that Tupac song. <laughs> Sorry. See, this is what people mean when they say they're neurodivergent. Just, yeah. Inside my brain, it's just all connected. There's a little manifest for you. If you know, you know. All in all, this Law and Order Special Victims Unit scene made me realize that this so often happens. Our family, our friends, our heroes, our beloved characters are pulled over or they land in a situation and they say, I'm a lawyer, I am friends with that person. Feeling the need to express that in any kind of situation highlights that we are calling upon a certain kind of privilege. That for me was an eye-opening moment to see how normalized it is and how it really is one of the 
the first things that we just tend to do. Call upon the connections, on the status that we have, because we know that it'll make a difference. And I'm not saying this to inherently characterize or qualify this as wrong behavior, because, you know, if you've got it, use it. But at the same time, I do find it imperative that we become more aware of our privileges. All of them, be it white privilege, male privilege, monetary privilege, societal hierarchy privilege, so that we more consciously can decide how to use them, whether to use them at all, and also to count your blessings when you are calling upon a certain privilege. But let it awaken you to the fact that you are utilizing, benefiting from a privilege, a privilege that not everyone has. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a privilege. Allow it to make you feel all the more grateful for the benefits that you do experience in life. And I think that's what's scary about this point in time. Everything that we held to be true, that we assumed was true. You could say the foundation that our society is built on. I don't want to say it's falling apart because it's not, but it is the age of Aquarius and we are shaking it up, but we're tearing toxic systems down only to build better, more healthy systems up. That is a trend with the whole Me Too movement, Time's Up movement, Black Lives Matter movement, all the movements that I, as a millennial, though we have seen a shit ton of life-altering historical world events that, you know, enough already. We millennials have seen it all. Thank you very much. Just, yeah. But that is also part of this point in time where I feel lucky to see it, to be a part of it, to hopefully play a part in it. Because as scary as it may be, challenging those beliefs, personally, I always find a win-win situation. Because when you learn something new, it either confirms what you already know, thus should not, is not considered a threat. And if it doesn't align with what you thought you knew, it's only an expansion and an evolution in your knowledge, which I would also consider a win-win. And yet, just look at Twitter and Facebook, apparently learning new information that doesn't confirm what you already think you know causes an identity crisis. Because we seemingly now have arrived at a point in our history where when you challenge someone's belief system, thought process, you're attacking them personally, you're attacking their worthiness as an individual. By the way, they take it so goddamn personal that it seemingly becomes acceptable to blacklist people, to harass people, to send people death threats to the point that they have to hire security or even go into hiding. The crazy, silly, yet beautiful thing is, this phenomenon to some extent can be explained from a psychological standpoint. In psychology, we refer to this phenom as confirmation bias, as we are programmed to more easily integrate knowledge that confirms what we already hold to be true than to accept knowledge that challenges that. But to have knowledge challenged is also the only way that we grow. If you surround yourself only with knowledge that confirms what you already think and feel is true, your growth stagnates, stops. If anything, you fall behind. That is also a trend I'm seeing that scares me greatly. That and the fact that we are apparently now more and more incapable of disagreeing respectfully. But that's, you know, for those kinds of topics, I direct you to my other channel, Let's Review 2023, where I expand on that even more. Well, yes, shocking, I know. Learning to view things in a different light and especially looking back on things that we previously perhaps would have labeled as acceptable or that is just the way things are. To view those now, see them for what they really are, toxic, allows us to see if and where we are complicit and also teaching us how to break those toxic behavioral patterns, to change the narrative, to hold both ourselves but also others accountable. That just goes to show that with the whole 
wokeness now. It's good. People are reflecting, reassessing to a more healthy, enlightened perspective. Only that way we come out of our comfort zone and into the growth zone and we are able to continuously develop and become better people. That development I love to see that that finally has gotten some momentum. We are now holding more people accountable, sometimes a little too rigorously and overshoot straight into cancel culture, thus seemingly forgetting that with accountability should also be given the chance for redemption and humility, but you know, we're learning and that's a good thing. In this Stargate episode, it's male privilege that seemingly overrules it all, not to mention that Carter is O'Neill's subordinate. She is to do what he tells her to do. With her suggestion of maybe we should leave, she is clearly signaling to her superior officer that she's uncomfortable and that she would like to leave. But they just completely dismiss her concerns. It's not even discussed. Daniel suggests if we just become accustomed to their ways, we should be fine. Completely dismissing that she is in danger, pure and simple because she's female. You can accustom as much as you want. Customization only goes so far. You can't expect her to change her gender or how she's viewed because of her gender. As a proper leader, O'Neill, in my opinion, he would have contacted Stargate Command, would have asked advice, like maybe send Carter back, maybe just get an entire male team there, which seemingly was an option that they considered, because later on, O'Neill himself mentions it as an option, that maybe next time we take an all-male team. Why wait? For right now, you would think that they would want to start off relations in the best possible way, without unnecessarily endangering one of your team members. I mean, yes, if they would have sent Carter home, it would have nullified the entire episode and what they were trying to do. And yet, they were trying to do something, which I admire and commend them for. However, the way that they did it, they seemingly went all in. Then they pulled back. They made it very unrealistic, considering the volatile nature of these men so far and the situations that have already occurred in the first five minutes of meeting each other. To at least show the process that they had, that they were aware of the dangers that she was in and also the position that she was in, Carter should have said, I feel uncomfortable going forward. I'm returning to Earth. Y'all deal with this. Colonel O'Neill was her superior and going against your superior is punishable by court-martial and could mean the end of your career. Especially seeing that O'Neill's job here is to take care of his team. So he, more than anyone else, should have been aware of the dangers that she was in and should have taken steps to assure her safety. Again, if they, in this episode, highlighted at least that process, I'll still addressing the issue, I think were you to try and make this episode around these topics now, that is something that needs to be in it to make it even remotely plausible, relatable, and acceptable to your audience. And I think they did try their best, considering the circumstances, but they'll dial it up to 100, then try to keep it PG-13, and then not really tackle the core issue at hand. So for so very many reasons, yes, I agree, this is a very bad episode. On the other hand, I also think it's a very good episode because it allows us to talk extensively, as the airtime of this episode clearly shows, by succeedingly longer than the actual Stargate episode that we are reviewing. But like I said, this episode just, it touches upon a lot of topics that are crucial, especially this day and age, for us to talk about more and in depth. And that's partially what I love about reviewing stuff that's aged, because we can now view it from a different perspective and see if it aged well or not so much. This one pretty much had it all. On some levels it aged well and other levels it really didn't. 
So that people, for whatever reason, do not like this episode, please talk about it. Why don't you like this episode? And specifically, for the executives that chose to skip this episode while airing reruns, what was your reasoning behind it? Because I can think of multiples. Whatever the reason, there are a lot of topics in this episode that I think are very good because it makes us talk about women rights, patriarchal societies, the role that women have in them, and the very real consequences and fates women suffer at the hands of men in these settings. For that reason, I do think that this is a good episode. Because if nothing else, it makes you think. Luckily, I know that the show gets way better in the years to come, but this is kind of what happens when you watch a show decades later with new eyes, thus now creating a beautiful cultivating ground for us to discuss at length all the thoughts and feelings it invokes. I do gotta admit, if they air a show now with this kind of narrative, this insensitive, yeah, I don't think I'd watch another one. But hey, goes to show how far we've come. Next, we see the group and the team being heralded as they enter the village. Women, they live segregated from the men. Carter is seen being led away by one of the women into a tent, the tent that turns out to be the chieftain's. As soon as they enter the tent, the wife takes off her face covering, and Daniel now seems to clock that the Shavadai appear to be descendants of the Chagatai, who live on the steppe in Mongolia around 900 years ago, a little Genghis Khan-ish style. Fun fact, apparently one in 200 males is a descendant of Genghis Khan. That is 0.5% of the entire world population. It, their estimation, currently 16 million men today can be directly traced back to Genghis Khan because of their Y chromosome. And the Y chromosome is passed from father to son. There's a happy ancestry biology fact for ya. The chieftain is called Mogel, and he now explains that in their society, there are laws prohibiting women from wearing men's clothes and to show their face in public. Incidentally, what you now see is that, yes, out in public, they cover their faces, but now inside the tent, presumably the chieftain's wife, has taken off her face covering. So even though she doesn't know the SG team, because they are now in private, she is allowed to take it down. Okay. Carter is now apparently allowed to speak. Thank you, I guess. Mogel shares his desire to create a society where trade will replace war. Good luck with that. In some instances, that can quickly become just a more sophisticated way of warfare, but sure. Keep the hope alive. Later, we see that Carter is now properly attired, and she is very clearly uncomfortable. I would assume so. It looks highly uncomfortable. As I'm watching this now, it annoys me a lot more than it did back in the olden days on how they so viscerally seem to respond to her all dressed up. I mean, like, have you never seen a woman in a dress? Daniel seemingly just encourages it and says, pretend like you're an anthropologist. Well, she isn't, but thank you for your support. O'Neill as well is all for it. He seems to actually like a little more subservience in Carter, which, again, in the olden days when I watched this, I didn't particularly clock even Tilk because she, what, now wears a dress? She shows a little more cleavage than she usually does in her Stargate uniform. It's subjectifying and it's uncomfortable and degrading, to be honest. O'Neill and Daniel even go as far as saying, well, it works for you, it's you. O'Neill even starts to call her Samantha, not even Dr. Carter or Captain or whatever. It just, it's so degrading. 
And I know, I understand, they probably meant this as a lighthearted scene, but right now, yeah, not so much. This is where I think you introduce a seriously heavy topic and then also try to still make this light. And like I said in my previous episode, that usually is the magic of Stargate, that they seemingly tackle meaningful, beautiful topics and still know how to balance it out with humor. But concerning this topic and with everything that we've learned over the past few years, this episode now can also be viewed as perpetuating the patriarchy narrative and the position that women play in them, or shall we say not play in them. So also on that note, I think this particular episode misses the mark. Apparently tonight they're throwing a party, strictly for the men, so Carter is invited and she's to be secluded. O'Neill, before he leaves, can't help but say you look great. So I do commend O'Neill here for asking, are you gonna be okay? So he seemingly is aware that things are happening that she obviously is uncomfortable or unhappy with, at the very least. Of course, as we all could have predicted, Carter gets kidnapped by seemingly at least two people. Though later only we ever see the one person. It isn't until the next morning that Daniel goes into her tent and discovers that Carter has been taken. Later we get confirmation that it was indeed Abu that kidnapped her. Could be seen as odd, especially the way he treats her now as a piece of meat to trade, when before he even saved her life because she saved his. So that thankfulness lasted for what, half a night? He says, your beauty will buy me me what I desire. Even warning her, thus knowingly, taking her to men that aren't as tolerant as his father. That just goes to show how little value he places in women. And I mean, yes, I know, it's the society that he grew up in, so of course it's likely that he shares their moral compass and values, but still, harsh dude, harsh. Especially when you learn what it is that he desires. What I do like now is that O'Neill at least seems to be well aware that the fact that Carter has disappeared is not a good sign. Daniel, they still make annoyingly obtuse and naive by saying, maybe it's a misunderstanding. I'm sorry, aren't you the anthropologist right here that should know better than anyone how these kinds of societies tend to treat women? Again, disappointing, Daniel. The chieftain Mughal admits that he too is disappointed in his son because his son not only betrayed them, but also him. And he, well, duh, decides to come with them when they go looking for Carter. Even after Daniel tells him, or especially after Daniel tells them, we will do our very best to bring your son home and no one will be harmed. And then O'Neill thankfully kind of makes it a little more realistic, saying we'll do our best. Because, well, yeah. But yeah, it makes sense that Mughal, you know, he knows Layla Land, it is his son. And would you trust complete strangers, whom's partner, teammate, whatever he thinks she is, was kidnapped by one of your men? Considering the societal rules that y'all had here, you'll be lucky if all they do is just kill him straight up flat out and not, you know, hmm. O'Neill and Daniel do have a little funny here where Daniel says, how come you always come up with worst case scenario? And O'Neill responds with, I practice. Which then makes me respond with, practice more. Because in this case, you seriously underestimated the risks that y'all were taking with her life. But okay, moving on. Something else that strikes me as odd now I'm rewatching it is how docile Carter is with Abu. She's on a horse, only her hands are tied. Doesn't she have ample opportunity and skills to get away from him? The tribe that Abu takes her to, the chieftain Turgan, clearly doesn't respect Abu, and Carter tries to reason with Turgan by disclaiming that she got abducted and that her friends will come. I'm sorry, honey, read the room. Makes no sense. We now discover what it is that Abu wants to trade Carter for in the first place. It turns out to be a girl. 
so okay he takes a woman that he just met that can save his life to a chieftain that he already is well aware of apparently who is not kind to women for another woman that he seemingly supposedly claims to love and to top it all off, of course, the woman that he claims to love and that he wants to trade Carter for is the daughter of Tergan. So yeah, do not see that happening anytime soon. <laughs> to really Romeo and Juliet this even further because this already wasn't so clearly meant to elude to some star-crossed lover thingamajig. Of course, she is set to be married off to another chieftain who apparently is also known for not being a delight to women. Bit lacking in the originality department there, people. Carter clearly still has not caught a clue much, and Turgan becomes so angry, telling her that their beauty won't suffer his anger much longer. Okay, so the more beautiful, the more you try rein in your inherent tendency to bash on women. Can I suggest some anger management therapy? After it's quite clear that no matter what's gonna happen here, Carter is not leaving, Abu leaves with his tail stuck firmly between his legs after accepting a few coins, thus seemingly giving up on his quest to purchase Naya, the daughter of the chieftain. Naya begins to cry, and Turgan finishes the scene off by slapping Carter. After this, we go back to the boys. We see O'Neill, Tilk, and Daniel with Mughal. They're forced to take a rest and use a sundial map, which is a nice little touch. Mughal offers them to compensate for the loss of Carter, which technically, you know, is nice. Mughal does seem pleasantly surprised when Daniel tells him that we don't view women as property. Well, in theory, we don't always exactly practice what we preach. But hey, nobody's perfect. Mughal tells them that in the olden days, things were different. The women were free among the Shavadai, and they even fought with their husbands. Mughal claims that the laws, as they are now, are the direct result to protect and hide the women from the demons who brought them here. Thus, possibly, maybe, referring to the aliens that abducted them from Earth and, and transplanted them on this planet? However, no one seemingly responds to this statement other than Tilk asking, but the demons have long gone, why haven't you changed anything? Which, yeah, valid question. I'm guessing it had something to do with the men discovering that they really liked having power over women and were reluctant to give it back, which sounds eerily familiar, don't it? Luckily, Mughal himself also seems to figure this out. Next, we see Abu sneaking up on a tent, and he uses a particular bird whistle, to which Naya immediately responds, thus alluding that this is how they communicated in the past, and that there really does seem to have been a little romance between these two. Later, we see Carter and Turgan hanging out, and here again, with the word choice, Carter responds with, In my world, I'm a warrior and a scholar. Why in your world? Just say, I'm a warrior and a scholar in every other world, because where you are, that is what you are. Because it is who you are, not when they're allowing you to be that. There is power in your word choice. Again, that's just nitpicky me. Turgan discloses that he has an alliance with 22 other tribes. And when she seemingly continuously seems to irk him, he threatens to suffocate her by hanging her upside down with dust-filled cloths stuck in her mouth. And yeah, that's a bad way to go. And Carter seemingly backs down to the point that instead of just shutting up, which would have been my preferred choice at that particular moment in time, she actually apologizes and concedes that he is Naya's father, so he knows best. Um, could have done without that little nugget, but okay. Possibly a way for the writers to show us that she's really trying to be obedient. Personally, I think it's a disservice to her character, to her strength, but you've already firmly established that a lot that happens here is debatable. 
An odd thing is that later we see Carter with a sharp knife while she's cutting up vegetables. She just told you that she is a warrior. Considering a bit weird, but now I think about it a little more, it could also possibly be intended to make her try something to then just beat her down, trying to break her spirit. Either way, whatever the reason, let's roll with it. So, of course, duh. She takes the knife, grabs a horse, and takes off. You go, girl. I'm for it. They catch her. There's another classic. The consequences of her trying to escape will now not be paid by her, but will be taken from inflicting harm on the women whose supposed job it was to keep their eyes on her. He's now going to punish his wife. Carter stops this and saying, if beating a woman makes you feel like a man, try me. Which now, you know, I commend her for interceding. And yet he doesn't. He just forcibly grabs her by the hair, ow, and gives her a forceful kiss, oh, poor man, a tapping, and tells her to be obedient or suffer a fate far worse than a beating. I think to make this episode work, they threaten with a lot of violence, I'm trying to make a point I guess, but they don't show or actually have him follow through on it. Considering what we know about their society and how they view women, I think it would have been more realistic, less PG-13, to have him follow through on his threats and show how they treat women. But like I said, I commend them for trying to show the brutalities that women can be and are exposed to, but because of the lack of follow through, it kind of just falls flat, considering all the pushback that Carter gives. Just my opinion. Next, we see that Carter is now seriously dressed down, a lot more earthy tones, and Naya comes up and thanks her for stepping in and protecting her mother. Apparently, she was the woman that Turgan wanted to take Carter's escape out on. And here, Naya explains to the viewer, possibly, and to Carter, why she's so accepting of his abusive behavior, because the women and children are always protected and fed. Yeah. This oftentimes is a response given when talking about women's rights and that it's all nice and dandy, but we need men to protect women. Yes, but then you also need to follow that up with protect them from whom exactly? And your answer most likely 99.9% .9 will be other men. Case in point. Because men in our society are not held accountable for their behavior, are not taught to treat women with respect, and it has been scientifically proven women are afraid that men will kill them, where men's worst fear is that they will be laughed at. Yeah. That they will be ridiculed as their worst fear. Women can't go out without having a worst-case scenario crisis intervention plan all written up and agreed upon with your friends. And now tell me how many men have that, hmm? So that argument, my friends, is bullshit and only underlines, highlights, screams. Now you too have succumbed to the patriarchal narrative that women need men to protect them. In addition, men have started each and every war, or at least 95-99% of them. And if your argument then becomes, but we need them to protect us from the wild animals, oh honey. No you don't. Three words, the Amazonian warriors. They just use men for sex and to procreate. And to that I can only say, right on sister. They had a society completely run by women for nearly a millennium thrive until they were massacred by men. Of course. As they're talking, Carter does get Naya to confess that she would like to say no to her father. And Naya seemingly asks Carter to help her with that. And on one hand, I get it. And on the other hand, I'm like, oh yeah, this will definitely get her killed. And yet at the same time, it's nice to see that even though she's very used to it and she's already actively making excuses for their behavior, she still deep down agrees that the abuse that women suffer at the hands of men in their society is wrong and needs to change. 
Next, we discover that the men have finally found where Carter is being held, and Morgul immediately says, oh yeah, this is bad, because Turgan is known to kill just for pleasure, and yeah, noticed. He also adds that if they attack in whatever way, shape, or form, because O'Neill suggests that they wait for nightfall and then kidnap Carter back, that this will lead to war, and Turgan is known for decimating the enemy, as in leaving no one alive. He suggests that they wait until morning. And here, I don't know why or what the writer's intent was, but to make Tilk's presence relevant, they gave him lines, lines that I would have actually expected Daniel to come up with, but hey, you know, I love them both. Because again, now it is Tilk who asks what will happen to Carter if we wait. He doesn't say a lot, but what he says, oh, so important. Morgul says that he will partake his latest purchase. Just the entire phrasing? I'ma let speak for itself. O'Neill kind of scoffs and says no chance in hell. Apparently, assuming that Carter will just fight him off, but it isn't until Morgul responds with Turgan does not accept no and kills those who refuse him. Only then does O'Neill seemingly understand that, yeah, she can say no and she can maybe, you know, physically fight him off, but no matter what, if she refuses him, he will kill her. Again, a little naive, but okay. Daniel again feels the need to apparently explain to Morgul that in our society women are allowed to say no. Though not all the men in our society have seemingly gotten that particular memo, let's roll with that statement for now. Carter is elated to see that her friends have found her. She sets fire as a distraction for Naya to escape, but I don't know, because her friends have seemingly come to rescue her, she is staying? Next we see that the men are trying to buy her back from Turgan, going up as high to make Morgul say that's enough for ten women, with O'Neill's promise that they'll pay him back. Though I find it slightly annoying that we're basically still playing by the rules of treating women as property. I do understand that it's them trying to avoid an all-out war. Not that it's gonna matter much, seeing that Turgon is clearly enjoying himself because he knows that as long as he keeps saying no, they'll go higher with what they're willing to give for Carter. So playing by his rules, their rules, still all ends up making me feel dirty. Next, Daniel tries different tack and tries to explain to Turgon that she is their society's shaman or chieftain increasing her importance in hoping that that will then convince him. Yeah, aim high, I guess. Turgan wants none of it and kicks them out until O'Neill shoots his gun into a lamp. Not Turgan, you know, that would have been awkward, but he shoots it at a lamp. And oh yeah, Turgan's very interested now and says, deal. So yay, we got Carter back. Next, we see them all back outside on the horses, and O'Neill says there are only five more rounds in that clip, so time to go. So to sum it all up, apparently they have now bought back Captain Smith Carter, and he gave him an M9 pistol with a few rounds left in the clip. And I gotta say, like, okay, you bought her back. Awesome. <clears throat> Jolly. You gave him a gun with a limited amount of bullets, and him firing it up in the air being all, look at me and how awesome I am. He is gonna run out of bullets soon. With what we know about this man, don't you think that as soon as he notices that the gun is out of bullets, he's gonna come after you angrily, seeing that he now has discovered that you totally shafted him. After presumably traveling a bit to get away from the village, and now allowing Carter a chance to change back into her Stargate Command uniform, they reference the mission that we have not seen, where she apparently drank something that, that seriously lowered her inhibitions and apparently she went a little wild. And the funny thing is, someone felt the urge to write a book about it, which is kind of fun, you know, fanfiction for the win. But that book actually got published in 2004, and me, being the due diligent researcher that I am, purchased that book. The mission described here is seemingly set just days after Kowalski death and though I haven't completely finished the book what I do appreciate greatly is that in this book we get that scene that I missed in the last episode that scene between Daniel and Tilk clearly I wasn't the only one missing that conversation 
It's kind of funny to me that this was just such an innocuous reference out of the blue, trying to make light of a situation, I suppose, that someone got so inspired by it that they wrote a whole freaking fan fiction book about it. Gotta love art inspiring creation of more art. Next, in the episode here, something happens that just makes me go, I'm sorry, what? Cardi now says that she doesn't blame Morgul or Abu. I'm sorry, we're already at the forgiving stage? This boy kidnapped you, handed you over to a very evil, abusive man that would have soon look at you as kill you, and we're already at the forgiving stage. Um, yeah, sorry, no, I'm gonna need another minute or two. I really want to know, are other people also like, okay, that was a bit quick and very trivializing of what just happened or could have at least happened if you took a minute and thought about what was happening? Or is that just me? For me, it's like they're rather trivializing this whole thing. And I know they kept it PG-13, but still, she was assaulted and threatened with her life multiple times. <laughs> Suddenly, Abu makes a reappearance and that yes, he and Naya found each other, but so did her father. And he took her back to the village with the promise to stone her to death. Because yes, let's make this a whole full circle of how these societies like to treat women when they do something that they don't like. Abu is seemingly upset that this fate awaits Naya. He muses, if only I would have left her alone. But then he also acknowledges that even if they hadn't met and started up their little dalliance, she would have been married off to that awful tribal warlord, Chimaka. While recounting this, his father was response. I wouldn't want to see anything. I cared for it to go to Chimaka. Yeah, only talking about a person here, but not sure. Call her a thing. And you could say, well, this is just going with the story and they do see women as property. But for me, the phrasing irked me. Furthermore, he adds, stoning her to death is the rule of law, law of the land. It is Turgen's right as the chieftain and her father, and he must rule by example. With this knowledge, I do now understand that Carter can be a little more forgiving and perhaps decide to work with them, considering what they did to her. O'Neill misses her and says, no, because if we do, this will start a war. Carter reinforces her argument with a special forces motto being the oppressor liber, to free from oppression, which is a very good honorable motto. I like it. Here, Daniel, only making me want to punch him in the face again, comes to the argument of do we have the right to interfere, to reinterpret their laws? They're going to stone a girl to death. Yeah. If I'm aware that someone is gonna do that, I will try to stop them. Or die trying. Just FYI. Because if that was me, yeah, I would really want someone to stop them. Just yeah. Carter vehemently says, yes, we have the right to interfere. They're gonna kill her for being in love. Apparently Daniel has finally decided to broaden his mind a little. It makes the suggestion that maybe there is a law with which they can fight the decision to stone her to death in lieu of her offense. And then lo and behold, Mogul says there is one law. Well, holla fucking loyal. The men did some thinking. You know, loophole baby, laws were made by men. So yeah, find a flaw in the law. Hey, that rhymes. <laughs> Back in the village, we see that Naya is tied up and begging her father's forgiveness. He comes up close to her ear and says, I forgive you. For a second there, she seems relieved and actually believes that he is going to spare her, but no. He just turns around and says, stone her. Apparently, no one of the entire tribe feels the need to stop this or even suggest no other option, but okay. It is Mugal that comes in saying, do not. And apparently, the law that is applicable here is that a stoning may be challenged by another chieftain. Okay, so why five minutes ago we were 
all like, oh no, we can't save her. There's just no way. This is a pretty big one and a pretty big ass loophole. And thanks, sweet baby Jesus, that Carter didn't take no for an answer. Jurgen apparently does have some honor in his code and says, I refuse to fight a cripple. And now that's seemingly off the cuff remark of Daniel Jackson, where he said that Samantha Carter was our chieftain, now actually comes in handy and gives this whole episode a very after school special ending. Because you know what's gonna happen now. Yes, let Carter find her girl power and kick the mean bully. I get that that is what they're going for, but for real people. Also, there's something else in this episode that remark about Mughal being a cripple that can be seen as leading into and perpetuating another stigma, but that could incidentally be colored by an experience I had the other night. And that is, we see that Mughal walks with a limp. In the entire episode, he is the only person that we see that has in any way, shape, or form a true disability. Some of you may now think, Layla, you're reading too much into this. Maybe, but let me tell you what happened the other day. I was at a dinner with my mother and her neighbors, who are people my age and thus also my friends. My mother told us that in addition to one of our friends who was recently discovered having an affair, had learned that now also his brother, who is married, was also having an affair. My mother said that this was odd and not behavior that they could have picked up from their father because their father had gained a disability at a very young age, alluding to the fact that when you have a disability, you are are deemed less attractive and thus are less likely to have an affair. And me and my friends all were like, okay, do you hear what you're saying right now? And hello, right here, your daughter with a physical disability, you are now affirming your belief that people with disabilities are less attractive and therefore less likely to be able to cheat. While I was still preoccupied with processing this and counting to 10, yes, my friend, who then raised the argument, you know Stephen Hawking, you know the dude in the wheelchair, he cheated on his wife. That kind of shut my mother up. But yeah, that again, for me, highlighted that a lot of people look down on people with disabilities. I mean, I had a seemingly friend, trust me, we're no longer friends, tell me that I needed to stick to my own kind, meaning people with disabilities. So yeah, this is a belief that apparently, seemingly, a lot of people hold. To which my only response is, and fuck you too. And some would argue that they made him a cripple to allow the possibility of Carter stepping up as a chieftain after Turgan refuses to fight Mughal. And yet, considering that it is a known stigma, and I can clearly testify to that, it takes some consideration of the usage of certain beliefs held by people in how you write your characters. Because his disability is never addressed, other than that one comment by Turgan, I'm not gonna fight a cripple. But considering that the law that they call upon is another chieftain is allowed to challenge you and we already established that Carter was also a chieftain, Carter could have just walked up and said, I challenge your ruling. That to me would have been more powerful and would not have necessitated the need to make Mughal a cripple. And like I said, it could not have even crossed their minds, but so like I said, as a person with a disability and clearly growing up or surrounded by people whose worldview is twisted concerning this particular topic, they hold the belief of enjoying a certain superiority over people with disabilities because in their eyes people with disabilities are less desirable, less capable, less able. And as I was re-watching the episode again before wrapping up this podcast episode, I was like, well, fuck me. Because now re-watching it after that experience, I was like, why did they make him a cripple? And incidentally, why does that particular person of the whole entire population of this planet, is he seemingly the only one with the mindset of loving your wife, only having one wife, but he also has to be crippled? Does that mean that, you know, people with disabilities are just, you know, more evolved? I'll take that one. 
because yeah usually considering all the stigma and discrimination and ableism and supremacy we come across yeah valid to some extent at least Carter in trying to convince Turgan to fight her instead. She even goats him by saying, use it as your chance to shut me up once and for all. And on the one hand, I remember back then when I saw this episode for the first time, I really liked that she challenged him. Now it just feels very after school special, trying to wrap it up quickly in a way that redeems her feminine warrior power. I don't know, it just feels eh. The storyline now has become so god-awfully predictable that we all know how this is going to end, so let's just wrap it up, please. Apparently now we learn when O'Neill inquires after her hand-to-hand -hand combat skills that she is a level 3 advanced. Well, alright then. Only after Carter has already entered into the fight does O'Neill think to ask how do the spirits help decide who wins. I don't know again. You stating that you are always expecting the worst, preparing for the worst because you practice? Really needs more practice, sweetie. Predictably, the only way to win this fight is if you've killed your opponent. It seems that Carter is preparing for a fist fight, but Turgan draws his short sword. Thankfully, Carter has her K-bar knife, so she's not completely at his mercy again. When she has the upper hand, Naya, still tied up, runs up, begging Carter not to kill her daddy. Really? Because if you live and he lives, you're gonna be married off to Chumaka, right? But okay. Carter makes Turgan verbalize that she is free to go, that his daughter is free to go, and there will be no war. Well, don't that just neatly wrap it all up tightly in a bow? Next, we're back at the Shavadai camp, where they are invited to stay for the six-day wedding. Hello. Now, after everyone, including Carter, is actually safe and people want to party, now you want to leave? Oy. In accordance to their customs, Daniel wishes Naya and Abu many years of happiness and many sons, after which Carter, thank you, elbows him in the ribs and making Daniel quickly add, and daughters, yeah. See, Daniel, there you go again. Carter's legacy, Mogul announces all Shavadai women will be free. The tent enclosure where the women were living segregated from the men is taken down. They all take their masks down and he tells Carter this is how you will be remembered. We're trying to, what, silver line wrap this episode in a happy ending? Nice try, but yeah, no. Too late, too spate. The episode concludes with the team walking back to the gate, where Daniel tells them that some of the plants that the Shavadai use are apparently going to be very advantageous as a new anesthesia drug on Earth. Of course, someone else will get the credit for where it came from, and O'Neill jokingly adds, Well, damn, now I have to cancel my Oprah interview. Which results in the only true funny in this episode, in my opinion, making Tilk ask in all seriousness, What is an Oprah? No matter how you feel about all the things that happened in this episode, and I'm not saying it's enough to redeem this entire episode, but this particular scene I really love. This again is that lightheartedness in the TV show that I really love. Like seemingly out of the blue, they say something that genuinely makes me laugh, which was needed. After this fourth episode of the first season that stirred up a lot of thoughts and feelings, seemingly therefore making this review episode actually longer than the episode itself is. Yes, in part due to the topic, but also to facilitate the people that may not have ever seen this actual episode, and also for the people who are currently unable to watch this episode at all, because like I said, I'm not sure if this really is an episode that is just deleted in most people's repertoire, seeing that they often skipped during reruns or if the streaming services have decided to honor the creator's initial design and added this to their list of episodes on the streaming services. So yes, this may have cost me being a little more elaborate than I would have been otherwise. Hopefully now everyone can have an informed opinion on this episode and thus invite you and allow you to review it with me. 
I really wonder how others view this episode. Like, how did you experience it? Do you agree with me? Do you not agree with me? Do you have a completely different take on it? Please do share. I really want to know. Because this was a doozy. I think the next one is okay. The sixth one, again, another doozy. Let's just give them all the benefit of the doubt. Because after this, I got to be honest. Before this episode, I would have without a doubt have said that I 100% love the character of Daniel Jackson. Today made a little dent in that, but this whole episode felt off to me. So don't fret, Daniel, apart from this episode slightly pissing me off. I still love you. I love Tilk's character for being so stoic, yet still so immensely compassionate. And if anything, actually a beautiful story of redemption, considering that he was the first prime of Apophis, and we all know that he did awful things, could technically be considered a war criminal. They don't shy away from that. O'Neill just, you gotta love his sassy, off-the-cuff honor code. And Carter, I don't know, maybe it's because they finally got a little more used to writing for a powerful woman. But these few episodes were rough. I do think that in later episodes, seasons especially, they do her a lot more justice and made her one of my favorite female characters on TV of all time. But for now, let's wrap it up and get ready for the next episode. Episode 5, called Broca's Divide, which is a nod to Paul Broca of French Anthropology and pathologist who argued that some mixtures of closely related races were beneficial while mixtures of greatly differing races were harmful. Goody! More fun topics to talk about. Which yes, now I kind of say in jest, but it's actually one of the reasons why I really love the show. It goes into all sorts of uncomfortable yet very important topics to talk about places, which is also partially the reason why I started doing this, so yay! Either way, I'm gonna be reviewing it and I hope to see you there! <laughs>